Hold on to your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Whoa, is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our job. And if that's not loving me Oh, welcome, folks. Then all I gotta say Song of the Day is The Temptations covering Little Green Apples. God didn't make little green apples It don't rain in Indianapolis in the summer And as promised, my guest this evening is the president the Foundation for Economic Education. He's been working with the Foundation for Economic Education for quite some time. Uh, We affectionately call it FEE, shortened. Larry Reed is with me on the phone. Larry, how are you this evening? Hey, just terrific, Joey. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. And first thing, I played this song, and I thought of this song, Little Green Apples, because I want to start with more the positive take. We're here tonight to really talk about the consequences of a socialist policy. But in one of your essays, I believe about does the economy need more central planning, you talk about our lack of wonder maybe in this world and how we take for granted the amazing things going on around us. And for some reason it brought to mind that song about all, you know whether it's man-made or nature and I, that essay really spoke to me about we're coming from a very positive place uh, about human liberty. And so when you see somebody advocating socialism, it's either that person might be dabbling with evil or they're just well-intentioned and they're not seeing how complex this beautiful world is. That's right. It's an incredibly complex world. And when you think of it, it's uh, all the more remarkable that so many good things that we take for granted have come about not because somebody at the top is issuing orders to make them happen, but rather uh, through the spontaneous interaction of people who are simply pursuing their own self-interest, but in the process are serving the interests of so many others. Just think of the uh, coffee that you're you're either drinking now or had this morning. Uh, Nobody ordered someone to grow coffee or to harvest it. Uh, nobody uh, would be imprisoned if they stopped doing that, and yet uh, it somehow ends up uh, in, uh, all the way from places like Brazil. It's the magic of the marketplace of people working spontaneously for their own self-interest and in the process uh, serving others at the same time. Well, and let's make clear, self-interest, and I, I kind of can't stand this movie for that, the Gordon Gecko greed is good. That's not really what we're advocating, and in fact, that's usually the shoes on the other foot with the accusations of greed. Yeah, you look at uh, what socialists advocate, uh, at least in regard to the redistribution of wealth, they're the ones always talking about money. They're the ones who are always talking about wanting to take it. They think uh, money is everything, and if they just have more of it, even at the point of a gun, and so they can redistribute it, that the world will be a better place. But I have to tell you, I know entrepreneurs by the hundreds over the years, people who've started businesses who are uh, every day taking risks, employing people, building things, and they are often written off by socialists as just greedy people who 
uh, want to sit around and play with their pile of gold coins. But I can tell you, virtually every single one I've ever known uh, went into business because of the, the challenge of assuming risk, of building something, of creating wealth, of satisfying the desires, the needs, the wants of other people. And they get fulfillment, not so much from the wealth that they generate for themselves through the payment by customers, but rather for the sheer thrill of building something, creating something. Yes, and folks, I want to now shift to the book itself, the XYZs of Socialism. You can find it at fee.org, F-E-E dot org. Uh, the preface is written by you, Larry, and it kind of lays out the, the general theme of the book. But this legacy at Fee goes back to the founding, does it not? Yes, it does. We were founded in 1946 by a wonderful man, Leonard Reed, no relation. <laughs> he spelled his name different, uh, differently from, from me, it's R-E-A-D. And he was our president from 1946 until his passing in 1983. Uh, he had the vision of a foundation that would advocate the economics and the morality and all the other important aspects, including, including personal character, of a free society. Uh, and that meant that... Uh, we were not simply criticizing uh, big government or the unfree societies of communism or various kinds of socialism, but we were advocating and still are a very positive vision of free people uh, as adults interacting with respect for everyone's life and property and contracts and so forth. That's, that's our vision. It's uh, a very positive, optimistic, and up- uplifting one. And it is a, a vision, I think, grounded in deep traditions, uh, r- religious traditions, uh, commercial traditions. It's not some utopian flight. Um, now, one of the, and I will say it's one of my favorite things to read, and it's one of the few socialist things I would claim as a favorite, is Oscar Wilde's The Soul of Man Under Socialism. But the reason I love it and say it's one of my favorites is because it is so fantastical. It, Wilde kind of gives the game away. He said socialism would free us from the sordid necessity of having to live for others. Like, whoa there, man. You're not giving them a good name. Um, and it's so over the top in his, like, vision. It leads right into a point you make in the book, uh, you make yourself, about really nailing down what socialists mean by socialism to the point where it almost becomes a, a personal fantasy. It's not something that they, it's not an easy working definition we can agree on. That's right. In fact, uh, not even socialists agree uh, on what it is because uh, you'll notice time and again that socialists will say, uh, well, we finally have it in place here, uh, you know, in XYZ country. And then in no time at all, when it flops, they say, well, no, that wasn't quite what we intended, or, or the, the right people didn't get in charge of it, we'll get it right the next time. I mean, uh, they de- redefine it so that every single failure of it is not really a failure of socialism at all. It's just a, a failed attempt at it. So, but it really reduces uh, to one or two or all three of the following features. Hmm. Socialism is either central planning of an economy by a political elite, or it's the forcible redistribution of wealth by that political elite, or it's the state or government ownership of the means of production. Uh, You know, some socialists say, well, it's more of one of those things than another, 
but it really reduces to uh, some blend of those three. And in any form, however, it's just been a consistent flop uh, throughout history. Well, and it relies always, and I think this point is brought out in the book as well, and it's one I've often made talking to some of my leftist friends, is that in a free market, in a market classically liberal libertarian society, people would be completely free to go live in a humble little commune, if you like, where you collectively own a farm or something like that. But that's often not what, say, socialists in modern-day Venezuela are talking about, that there's always (laughs) force involved. That's right. I like to say that if it's uh, voluntary, it's not socialism, uh, because if it's voluntary, you can do that under capitalism. so, yeah, everywhere socialism is tried, it's obvious from the start that it isn't just the uh, the velvet glove. It's the iron fist from within that really uh, determines how it, how it operates. It, it rests upon force, uh, upon the arrogant view that a handful of people uh, are smart enough or compassionate enough that you can trust them with political power. And if they just push people around and remake society according to their vision which means to force you uh, to do things that they want you to do, then they can make for a better world. It just doesn't work that way. It's, it's naive, and it ignores the fact that people are not robots to be programmed. We're all different, uh, and to be fully human, each of us has to be as free as possible to be ourselves. Absolutely, and again, folks, we're talking to Larry Reed, the president of the Foundation for Economic Education. You can find this book we're talking about, great collection of essays on the topic of socialism, the XYZs of socialism, not the ABCs. We hear about the ABCs all the time. Now, Larry, I I really want to shift this to some of my personal conversations lately. I had a gentleman on, I like the guy a lot, Brandon, I have him on the show all the time, and we were having this discussion where he said to me, Joey, we're part of the have-nots. The world's made up of haves and have-nots, and because you know, we're radio guys making a very humble salary, we're part of the, the have-nots. And I kind of just looked at him with incredulity. It, like, I, I couldn't, I'm like, I don't feel like a have-not. I'm going to go home and eat ribeye tonight after driving my automobile and have, like, some streaming service on the television. It doesn't, I don't feel impoverished uh, by any way. But this has long been just a mentality. It's almost like the success of markets and the success of capitalism where we have it it breeds this type of envy that you see the other guy across the the country with all the stuff and instead of going this is part of why the system is so great it leads to this almost envious uh, sort of eye that's right in fact uh, i don't know of any occasion uh, in any country in all of history where envy has uh, if it's been widespread has led to good things or a positive uh, framework for society it tends to cause resentment envy of others uh, instead of focusing uh, on yourself and ways to improve and to do better, uh, you're focused instead upon dragging somebody else down. And uh, that doesn't get you very far. Uh, Socialists think of the world as if it were a fixed pie. And so then they're angry that at any given fleeting moment in time, some people have more than others. But, hey, what if we're baking a bigger pie all the time? And what if those who are leading the way in baking a bigger pie are the ones who are taking the risks, employing people, inventing new ways of doing things. 
uh, yeah, they may get ahead, uh, but uh, they're baking a bigger pie, and you and I can do the same. How many stories do we have to have in America, uh, traditionally a, a free country, of millions of people who had nothing to start with but pulled themselves up and became uh, uh, wealthy? I mean, that's the kind of thing that you want. You want opportunity. You want progress. You want people to have a chance to move up the ladder. But you don't get that if you focus on dragging people down who have uh, uh, climbed the ladder. It just, uh, it just doesn't get you very far. Well, and I've become confused, and maybe I'm just odd, Larry, uh, but I hear things even like equality of opportunity that gets bandied about by conservatives and uh, progressives. And I hear that phrase, and the only time I ever really want to say equality is equality of freedoms, of rights, equality before the law. When I hear equality of opportunity, I'm like, no, I want an abundance of opportunity. I want as yeah. many opportunities as we can create for people in this world. I think that's right, uh, Joey. That's a very constructive, positive uh uplifting and optimistic view of reality. That's the kind of view that uh, will give you incentive to do better and to create wealth and to serve customers. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's uh, it's a just an odd place I think we are in society, and I kind of want to ask you this point of view. It's a broad question. We can take a big snapshot of the last 10, 20 years here in the United States. We thank God are largely still a market society, and much of the developed world that is developed and going strong are market-based societies, even the so-called Nordic models or Scandinavian countries. Uh, but when you look at the United States in particular, do you see a, a creeping socialism in certain policies, and what would you highlight are maybe some of the, the worst things out there in our country currently? There certainly has been, uh, for as long as I can remember now, for probably the uh, entirety of the 20th century, and now into the 21st, a kind of creeping socialism. Uh, and that's the way it typically comes about. Mm. Uh, I mean, there have been plenty of occasions when a country has gone from freedom to serfdom overnight because of a foreign invader. But most of the time, if it travels that path, it's gradual, and it's because of what people do to themselves. It's because they stop, uh, increasingly stop working for a living and voting for one or putting their faith instead of themselves into politicians to deliver them the goods at other people's expense. We've been traveling that path now for decades, and you see it in the form of uh, uh, the very high percentage. It's uh, nearly half now of the American people who, to a considerable degree, are dependent upon uh, programs and handouts from government. Uh, and you see it in the form of the uh, massive $21 trillion national debt. You see it in the form of runaway spending, even at the peak of a, uh, or near the peak of a economic expansion right now, when you'd think government's deficits uh, would be uh, small, we're going to set a, a, a near record again, about a, almost a trillion dollars this year in red ink, because people want more from government than they're willing or even able in some cases to pay. Yes, and I think it does come back uh, to an issue, and you always uh, are talking about this, and I think rightfully so, an issue of character. And it's yeah. it's strange how my conversations with, say somebody's not even a full-blown socialist, maybe they're like Bernie Sanders, but it's more kind of, you know, we like these ideas of taking care of everybody. It comes down to a basic argument, and it's happened to me time and time again, of what 
are people like in their basic human nature. I tend yeah. to have this point of view that you do need a well-developed conscience. You do need to educate and, and give people worthwhile burdens to carry in their lives to accomplish something. But I think people largely, when given freedom, will look out for one another. Whereas my, my left-wing friends tend to say, no, you, you have to have that, that sword or the whip to get people in line. And have you encountered this mentality? It just seems like that's always what it boils down to. What are, how do people operate on, in their basic nature? Yeah, I've seen it uh, in evidence. I've heard it uh, many, many times. Uh, it really reduces to a misplaced faith in politics and politicians. Mm. Uh, behind it all is the assumption that, well, if you get elected to uh, office, then uh, that suddenly imbues you with some degree of compassion that, that the people who sent you there uh, don't have. And I just fail to see it. I don't see uh, a single reason to believe that politicians spending other people's money and focused on their own advancement, their own reelection, are going to be more caring and compassionate than uh, things like private institutions, family, community, church, the many ways in which in, in civil society we take care of, of one another. Politicians uh, have their own agendas, mm. and uh, at the forefront of their agendas almost always is their own perpetuation in power. Why you would want to trust your livelihood uh, to them and to be dependent upon them is, is beyond me. Yes, and I think it comes back to, and you've mentioned, uh, you've put a little addendum we mentioned last time we talked over a year ago. It's been too long. Um, wow. That it's not only that power corrupts, that uh, power also attracts the corrupted. And I tend to think also that the power in this country has tended to corrupt the people. That it, yeah. it does it to kings, it does it to emperors and to autocrats throughout history and currently in the world. But it seems it also can do it to the people themselves and what they actually advocate for and who they put their trust in. Absolutely. And the, the corruption that inevitably comes from the concentration of power and money in government, which is essentially what socialism does, that corruption uh, uh, does its harm throughout society. And it becomes, uh, it feeds on itself. This is one of the most powerful arguments, I think, against socialism that we often overlook. And that is that the bigger government gets, and that's exactly what socialists want. They always want more government. But the bigger it gets, uh, the more corrupt it inherently must become. Because uh, you've got this massive redistributive apparatus uh, trying to control other people's lives and uh, buy votes with other people's money. It breeds corruption, and what happens is good people, truly good people of character, increasingly say, I don't want to have anything to do with government. It's, it's dirty business. Why would I drag my name through the mud? So good people increasingly wash their hands of an ever bigger government, and then we end up ultimately, if that isn't reversed, with the worst of both worlds, bad people running big government. And it's something I've had to come to. I, I especially started in talk radio and got a degree in politics because I thought it was all about the honest charitable argument. It was just the logos. And I've learned after doing the radio gig for six years is that no, it's really a fight with words. That it's a competition for power. 
and when you're really in the thick of the political arena. And this is why I love what y'all do. You're, you're finding people young and maybe people who have found success in life and business as entrepreneurs. And it's not part of this political party's agenda or that political party's agenda. It's more, you know, these ideas are fairly universal for all time, and we're going to talk about them any day over at Fee. That's right. And we encourage what we think are the, uh, the virtues that drive economic opportunity and progress. Virtues like uh, respect for the lives and the property and the contracts and the choices of other people. Leaving people alone as long as they do no harm to you. Uh, the virtues of honesty, uh, being truthful and uh, putting truth on a pedestal as being valuable for its own sake. It means such things as uh, responsibility. In a free society, uh, people have to step up to the plate and take accountability for their uh, their actions. You don't subsidize bad behavior or poor judgment, or, or you'll just get more of it. Uh, so, yeah, I, it, you mentioned a moment ago character. Early, it all comes down to character. When people ask me, uh, as I hear quite a lot, Mr. E, what do you think is the most important issue in the country? I always say it's character, mm -hmm. and it's always been character. Everything hinges upon it. No country has ever lost its character and kept its liberties or kept a, a sound economy. That's how important it is. Well, amen to that. And also on that note, and how's this for a segue, folks? We have to hit a quick break. But coming back with Larry Reed, president of the Foundation for Economic Education, I want to talk about Jesus, Larry. Okay. Is that allowed? Can we talk about Jesus? <laughs> okay, yeah, we might get sued by somebody. <laughs> <laughs> well, who, wait, who owns the trademark on Jesus? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it's not the government. Oh, yeah, we're in a lot of trouble then. So coming back, we're going to talk about Jesus, folks. It's a promise. We'll have a quick break here, and we'll be back with more with Larry Reed. There's no such thing as Dr. Seuss. Joey Clark. God didn't make the little green apples, and it don't rain, and in the napples in the summertime. Joey Clark. Oh, welcome back. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. My guest this evening over the phone, Larry Reed, President the Foundation for Economic Education. And um, I haven't told you this yet, Larry, but I once was Jesus Christ. Not in, I'm not making the same mistake John Lennon made. Um, <laughs> no, I, I played Jesus in Godspell. Nice. Oh, really? Oh, my gosh. And, you know, it's. I didn't expect this going in uh, when I took on that role. It was some random day after football practice. They were having auditions. I'm like, well, why not? Um, and they cast me as Jesus. But what I didn't expect was uh, when you do those scenes, how much it affects you when you get into that mindset. And I thought they did a very good job in Godspell of recreating the lessons found throughout the Gospels um, and in Scriptures. But one thing you often hear from folks, and I think sometimes the bumper sticker logic gets to people, is socialism's just sharing. Socialism's just the golden rule. And Jesus was a socialist. And even, well, maybe he intuited socialism. And you, I think, this is like your home, your grand slam. 
uh, in this book, The XYZs of Socialism. Um, so when somebody says that to you, Jesus was a socialist, what say you? <laughs> well, I say nothing could be further from the truth. There is not one single, uh, even remote hint within the entire New Testament in any of uh, his words that he would be uh, the slightest bit supportive of what socialism is all about. Never advocated for the forcible redistribution of wealth. He never advocated for state ownership of the means of production. Uh, he never advocated for the concentration of power. Uh, Jesus' message was a message for the heart. And uh, I have a feeling that if he were to uh, come back for the moment and uh, approach Bernie Sanders today, he might say something like, you know, you're kind of like the Pharisees of my time. Uh, people who uh, uh, thought that uh, they were keeping the word and thought they were the arbiters of it, but they were uh, simply uh, mouthing platitudes. And every time they did something, they wanted to do it at other people's expense. Uh, what? And just like you. And so uh, uh, there's no evidence whatever that Jesus would support socialism. Uh, he was all about a voluntary uh, acceptance of eternal principles, not the use of political force to satisfy somebody's uh, personal agenda, no matter how well-intentioned. Well, and you see this even in his parables, like the parable of the talents. I mean, there's like basic, almost economic points we would make today with economic science that you're getting from Jesus himself. Yeah, in the parable of the talents. Uh, who's the hero of that, of that very parable? It's the guy who uh, took the talents, the money of the day, and put it to uh, the greatest, uh, most productive use. The one who came back uh, having turned it, uh, simply buried it, and not having generated any wealth with it. He's the villain. He's the one that, uh, uh, in the uh, parable, that uh, uh, the money is taken from to give to the guy who had turned it uh, into the greatest uh, profitable investment. So... Uh, Jesus was all for the voluntary creation of wealth. I can't believe that there's anything in the Bible that would suggest he would be in favor of the uh, forcible redistribution of it. But one note you address in the essay, though, when I hear this phrase I'm about to throw at you, I, I still think there are a lot of people who say, read even the basic, like the greatest hits of Jesus. Um, instead, of, <laughs> they don't collect all the albums, they just have a greatest hits album. Yeah. Um, you know, render under Caesar that which is Caesar's, render under God the things that are God's. Um, to me, I kind of have a certain understanding of that, but don't people throw that out as, oh, see, you got to pay your taxes, you got to support the authority. Oh, yeah, they take that, that uh, sentence or two and turn it into all kinds of things. They, they read that, uh, socialists do anyway, they read that as Jesus saying that, hey, anything that Caesar wants is his. No matter what he, uh, how much of it uh, that you generated that really belongs to you, no matter how much of it he wants, if he says it's his, give it to him because it is. That's not what Jesus was saying. In fact, remember the context. Uh, this was in response to the Pharisees who were trying to entrap him hmm. into saying something that uh, could be construed as uh, anti-Roman uh, and causing the Roman authorities to come down on him. Uh, when he says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, he's making no commentary on what he thinks really does belong to, Caesar's, to, to Caesar. Uh, I mean, you, you could say that uh, and think in your mind that nothing belongs to him. Right. So therefore, <laughs> you know, don't render anything to him. So that's a separate issue. 
No, and it's a brilliant, brilliant statement by Jesus. Absolutely, that. it is. Yeah, it kept him entirely true, and it's uh, kept him out of uh, you know trouble at that particular moment. Well, and it's it's I mean it's a common political tactic. I mean, but didn't Jesus say he came to uphold the law? And it's I mean I think this is a this is like putting the ball in the tee here. Uh, Anybody who studied, I think, Christianity or Judaism, it's like, we're not talking about the government here, necessarily. That's right. When he says the law, I mean, just imagine uh, all the crazy laws that we pass, the worst of the crazy laws Mm. that we pass almost every day. Do you think he's saying that, uh, oh, yeah, well, if if they pass it, if if a bunch of legislators have passed it, therefore... uh, uh, we not only shouldn't question uh, that law, we should simply uh, do whatever they tell us. He wasn't saying that at all. No, I... <laughs> the, the law, I should point out, the law to him, uh, it, it, to understand the proper context, you have to remember that he's referring to the Mosaic Law, and uh, the core of the Mosaic Law are the Ten Commandments, and two of them directly address the matter of uh, material wealth. One of them says, Thou shalt not covet. In other words, if it doesn't belong to you, keep your eyes off of it. And then there's another one that says, thou shalt not steal. It doesn't say thou shalt not steal unless the other guy has more than you do, or thou shalt not steal unless you are really convinced you can spend it better than the guy who who uh, earned it. And it certainly doesn't say uh, thou shalt not steal, but it's okay to hire a politician to do it for you. <laughs> right. Right, and the, as you point out in the essay, the Good Samaritan didn't go, oh, let me call uh, DHR. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, you're in bad shape, let me call the welfare officer. Or, or here's the phone number, or here, or the address to write your social worker. I mean, no, he was a Good Samaritan because he, he pitched in at that moment with his own resources and helped the guy in need. If he had done any of those other things, if he had done what socialists advocate today, by just remanding the guy to a government bureaucracy, we would not know him today as the Good Samaritan. We think of him as the good-for-nothing Samaritan. And then you bring up in this uh, essay a point we kind of touched on earlier about, you know, the Gordon Gecko, greed is good. Capitalists are just greedy, fat pigs. Um, I think it is very clear, and I often go to my way to make the point, is that it is right to say the love of money for money's sake, is the root of all evil. And maybe there are some other roots out there. It could be a giant you know, web uh, network of roots. But when you go for money for money's sake, greed on top of greed, that is not uh, necessarily a capitalist position. I'd imagine somebody could in a free market be a greedy person. Um, but the lesson stands on its own. Yeah, uh, Jesus and other Christians were saying at that time, and and. Uh, are still saying today that don't worship money, that uh, that leads to all kinds of uh, uh, temptations and errors, and uh, uh, it corrupts the soul. Uh, But you don't have to worship money to desire a better living for yourself and your loved ones and for society at large. Uh, uh, But but it is the love of money, the inordinate uh, desire to accumulate it at any cost and uh, irrespective of the rights uh, of other people that's what's evil uh, and yet uh, you know it doesn't get uh, you know I think Jesus would say too look uh, don't use political connections to rig the market in your favor that's dishonest that's unfair mm-hmm. that's extraordinarily unchristian so he would say if you want money 
Well, go out there and do what uh, uh, a, a good Christian would do. Solve other people's problems with innovative products and services. They will reward you with money, and then don't worship it, but uh, you know, rejoice in the fact that others have rewarded you for services rendered. Well, and I think a, a love of money or a worship of money uh, really comes from a, a misunderstanding of what money is. Now, I'm sure people who make a lot of it, um, unless they really are like the trust fund kid, which is quite the funny stereotype. I'm sure some people like that exist. Uh, but people who I think are gifted at making money understand money is uh, just a, a device for creating more wealth. It's not the money itself. It's like, what am I doing for others, as you just pointed out? How am I creating value for other people that will return to me? It just... It, goes back to our larger discussion that I'm just baffled by this basic notion of look at, say, Walmart with all their money. Uh, how, how are they allowed to have all that money? It's, well, they provide low-cost goods to millions of people. Yeah, they didn't go rob a bank. They created something. They hired people. They took risks. They, they built things that uh, didn't exist before they came along. Uh, they baked a bigger pie. They didn't uh, simply grab a bigger slice of it for themselves. Well, and I'm not trying to create a theological scandal here, but one of the things that uh, you said after you put out this essay about Jesus being a socialist or not, um, that came out in 2015, so you revised it because some of your so-called progressive friends brought up uh, Romans 13. And again, I'm not trying to create a theological scandal, but number one, uh, that's not Jesus talking in Romans 13. I mean, I think Paul's very important to Christianity and, and much of what it's about. Uh, but Romans 13 is essentially sub Paul's urging submission to the governing authorities and warning against rebellion. I think you had a very uh, learned response to this charge. Yeah, it, a lot of people take that far beyond what uh, Paul, who, who wrote those words, ever intended. Uh, they take it to mean that Paul is justifying uh, uh, a, a big government. You, you can also say, wait a minute, uh, Paul wasn't taking a position at that moment on what form or size of government is better than another. He was saying, but uh, focus on what's important in life, mm -hmm. which is an inner renewal, an inner renaissance. Uh, I can't believe that Paul would say because it's so in, incongruous with everything else he, he said and that Christ said. I can't believe he would say that uh, uh, it's never justified to resist or oppose government. I mean, if, if that were the case, if that were the Christian view, that whatever government says you should do it and it's entirely legitimate, well, then there wouldn't be a Jesus, because Herod's order to uh, slay the, uh, uh, the children uh, that were born at that time uh, he was trying to, of course, liquidate the Messiah before he could ever become the Messiah. But uh, if that were the case, you'd have to say, well, that, that order should be carried out, and it was perfectly justified because it came from the government. Right. Uh, that would be ridiculous. It, it would be ridiculous. And to me, it, it almost applies to uh, libertarians, how Paul is uh, counseling Christians at that time. Uh, I would say to some, especially younger libertarians out there, uh, say you're completely, and I flirt with this, I, it depends on my mood in the day, Larry, maybe that's not very principled of me. Say you're a full-blown anarchist, and you know, think you private provision of roads. Some private roads do exist. Anyway, you're a very hardcore libertarian, and I would advise those people, pay your taxes 
And yeah, if you need to drive on a government funded road, go drive and find a job. Like, don't don't out of principle hurt yourself and give an overwhelming power and authority the ability to ensnare you. Be smart yeah. about how you advance your cause. Yeah, don't be oblivious to reality uh, that's around you. Uh, uh, in Paul's day, of course, the Romans had enormous control uh, and power in the uh, uh, in Palestine and in, in that uh, region of the world. Uh, the Christians had no armies, and so uh, for them to rise up at that moment and you know, on behalf of their faith and try to overthrow the Roman regime was was not Paul's first priority. I mean, he recognized, I'm sure. Uh, that that would probably be self-defeating, hmm. and that uh, the number one priority had to be the renewal of one's spirit, irrespective of the political context of the day. So you have to understand a lot of this stuff in the context of when it was written or when it was spoken. And at that time, uh, Paul was speaking to early Christians in, the, in an environment uh, uh, in which uh, they had to be constantly wary of being crushed by the Roman state. So I think we've made it clear, Larry, that Jesus was not a socialist, and any attempts at that are a bit absurd, um, if not just uncharitable and outrageously uh, a lie. But I want to end the show here. We only have about five, six minutes left. On, on a personal note, I start with a confession. I guess we're talking about Christianity. Let's begin. I'm, I was raised Catholic, so uh, hear me, Father Larry. Um, okay. <laughs> my confession is... Uh, I've felt very, I feel very burnt out on politics and not just the daily back and forth that you see in the news, um, but even like advancing the cause of liberty. Not that I don't believe in it anymore, but like I wanted to just take a break and go do other things in my life, go fishing for lack of a better phrase. And I'm wondering, in your long career in advancing these ideas, have you ever had those moments in your life where you're like, i got to do something else to get my mind on something else? Well, you can always talk me into uh, to fishing. That's one of my uh, great hobbies. But uh, you could never dissuade me from a central focus on advancing liberty because I think it's, it's critical. It's, uh, it's you know, next to getting your spiritual life in order. There is nothing more important than uh, that you live in freedom to be who you meant to be, who you really are. Uh, I can't imagine life in the absence of liberty. In my mind, that would be simply un unlivable, unthinkable. Uh, in places like North Korea, they probably come pretty close to that. And can you imagine, just based upon what we know of what life is like there, where the government is monitoring every move and uh, circumscribing every desire, unless it fits with uh, their agenda for you. I can't imagine living in that kind of a situation. So it's worth fighting for. It's worth giving your life for. And uh, so I've never uh, allowed the, uh, you know, a, a, a bad turn of events or uh, poor election uh, results or whatever or uh, anything like that uh, slow me up because liberty is just too important to give up. And I never want to give the other side the luxury of winning without a fight. Amen to that. I, I think for me personally, it wasn't a disappointing election. Um, like this last election, I, I told my audience, and I got some blowback for it, but that's fine, uh, that I would be politically celibate. 
this time around. Um, but I would, I mean, I'll pay attention. I'll be following the news and advancing what I think is right or wrong, but I'm, I'm not going to be stumping for this or that uh, candidate. It's an interesting game to play, and I might do it another election year. But I think for me it was uh, personal tragedies in my life, and it, it kind of put things in perspective. And I'm, I'm starting to feel now like I, I'm revisiting uh, the ideas of liberty. And the reason I asked you and brought this up with you is because I mean, you have been giving speeches for the last three decades. I mean, there. what is it like when you see the light bulb go on, so to speak, with a young person or somebody who's maybe on the fringe of these ideas or a little blurry with their idea of where they are politically? What is it like to see somebody maybe inspired by something you say or maybe something you recommend to them, teach them? Is How fulfilling is that moment? Oh, my gosh, there's nothing more exciting uh, to me than that. And I've seen it happen uh, many times, and I've had so many former students in years later come to me and say, you know, you, you, you changed my thinking, you changed my life, whatever. And that's a very humbling, at the same time, it's a very exhilarating thing. Uh, to make a difference in another person's life in a positive way is uh, uh, really extraordinarily fulfilling. I mean, you can't ask for much more than that. And so I've, I'm very proud of the fact that uh, in some way, uh, small or large, depending on the person, I've made a difference by getting people to appreciate what they can do, what they can accomplish if they're free. Uh, I just think it's it's a thrill every time. No, amen again. I'm saying that a lot tonight. And, folks, again, my guest has been Larry Reed. He is the president of the Foundation for Economic Education. And we've been talking mostly about the book, a compilation of essays, the XYZs of socialism. You can find that at fee.org, F-E-E.org. And you can find it for free, for free on Fee. That is a, it's a great collection and uh, I still have real heroes on my shelf, Larry. That is also <laughs> Thank you. another book people need to pick up, a very inspiring book uh, with true stories from incredible people of the past. And uh, I look forward, it's less than a month away, to FECON. Uh, I'm, I'm excited for that. Uh, I think it will help me bring back some of the zeal. The ideas are still there. The belief is still there. I think my uh, dark night of the soul, not to get too over the top with that is uh it's coming to an end and i'm ready to get out there again and why not begin as we enter into fecon season hey that's great and, and joey i have to say we are thrilled and honored that you'll be coming not only as an attendee but as one of the speakers on a panel uh we're thrilled to have you i'm, I'm looking forward to it and larry thank you so much for joining me tonight and i hope you have a wonderful rest of the evening and rest of the week thank you same to you joey and thank you and folks tomorrow night uh, we're doing a Geopolitics 101 of the Middle East. Dr. David Sorensen of the Air War College is going to be coming over here. And it's not necessarily going to be focused on one country in particular. We're going to be doing a, a broad stroke on who are the players in the Middle East, what are their different interests. Things are heating up there, to say the least, but they're always tending to boil over, aren't they? So thank you for listening. This has been the Joey Clark Radio Hour. So humbly named after myself, Joey Clark. Talk to you all tomorrow night.